Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, it is the 12th of the 6th, and we are back after a, uh, should we say, period of slight technical difficulties beyond our control. We could call it a hiatus. Or we can call it lots of things. Yeah. We will go right into this. We're going to be looking at uh, the polls. There's a particular story about an individual case of a person impacted by the HSE's gross inefficiency and uh, just general shithawkery that I wanted to talk about. Uh, we want to look at a little bit of news that has gone international. And I suppose, Michael, we will start with uh, the story, I think, that will bring you the most joy. The review of minimum unit pricing, that is minimum alcohol pricing, uh, from Scotland. The, the review of that by Public Health Scotland which just came out this week and which showed that the policy did absolutely nothing to stop alcoholics from... Oh, alert, Gary. Yes, well, I suppose we were going to get to it eventually. It showed that there was no impact on their drinking patterns. It did show the people who were um, drinking at lower levels did stop drinking as much, but alcoholics and those with harmful drinking patterns continued drinking exactly the same amount. And those who were presenting to services for substance abuse were coming in drinking just as much as they had been before. The only real difference amongst alcoholics was that they were spending more of their uh, household income on alcohol because of the increased prices, and they had moved from uh, high-strength beers and ciders to spirits. So that is pretty much exactly what we said would happen, Michael. Well... The spoiler alert, by the way, Gary, was for those people who want want to skip over this section so they could go and re- read the report themselves. And now, basically, you're going to say, why would you bother reading the report? Because you have all the good stuff. So I, I think you should be a little bit more careful with that. What you you think I should have opened with? There's been a shocking discovery. Listen for the next 40 <laughs> minutes and then we'll tell you what it was. Yeah. No, we could. they could tell them where we skipped it. We could skip ahead and then they could come back and listen to us afterwards. Anyway, okay. I do feel a bit typecast when it comes to this. It's always... Michael, when I told you this news, I've never seen you so happy. Well, happy maybe is the wrong word. I mean, vindicated. Okay, Gary, and let's face it, it's not just me. Uh, I think you were not uh, unimplicated in in every single thing we said. I mean, let's face it, Gary, you didn't have to be Nostradamus or Einstein to get this one right. Who We said that it would not affect people who are abusive or dependent drinkers. It has not. We said that the people who are most likely to be affected by price changes or people who are most price sensitive are moderate social drinkers. Now, Gary, we didn't say that because we had some kind of brilliant insight. We said that because that's what the studies and that's what the research has shown for a very long time. People who are most sensitive to price changes are social moderate drinkers who don't need to change, but are the ones who end up changing. The people who don't change are the people who need to change, who are the people who have abusive relationships with alcohol and are are, are dependent on alcohol. Well, actually, it might be worth mentioning on the studies. The reason that people believe that things like uh, MUP will work is because most of the research has looked at drinkers in general. And this is a point this study brings up, that there's actually very little research on people with alcohol dependency and problematic issues with alcohol and uh, sensitivity to pricing. So everyone, all of these highly accredited policymakers and academics assumed it would work exactly the same. But to be fair, it's more than an assumption. This is based on what is called the Sheffield model, which was a model developed in the University of Sheffield. Now, the which and actually has been critiqued by other people who work in the University of Sheffield. And the basis of this, there is an algorithm which assumes that you can see a decline in alcohol consumption within a group, uh, which will 
correspond to a certain degree of price increase and that that uh, it's not that the, there is you can graph that change it's not linear but you can graph it however this is an algorithm it is a theory it is not based on an empirical study from which they derived a conclusion this is an assumption and the assumption is that you will find the reductions in consumption equally distributed across the various drinking populations. And that, Gary, I don't think is something that's borne out by the reality. No, it, it isn't. But that's what they assumed. They assumed it was going to be the same and that there had been very little research. So, yeah, when you talk about research, there's been research in other areas that have indicated that this was not going to work out the way they thought. But in relation to alcohol, they just kind of assumed the existing research covered it. And now they have to sort of go, oh, that doesn't seem to be the case. But the problem there, Michael, I think, is that if you take a second to look at this, just the general idea of it, the problems that would arise are obvious. Like you don't need to know a lot about the field to know that alcoholics because they are addicted to a substance and generally have a range of comorbidities usually related to mental health, are not going to be sensitive to your price increase. Now, it was interesting in the, this, when they go through the results, they didn't see any evidence amongst alcoholics of um, substitution, of going to different drugs. But that may just be because the price wasn't high enough. But that's, that's the point I wanted to make there. It's not the case that addicts are completely immune to price sensitivity, that's not the case at all. But uh, I want to roll it back here. First of all, all of these studies tend to have at heart a kind a problematic assumption, which is that we, as we in the general public, are passive receivers of public health policy. In other words, that they have a target that they want to achieve. This is the tool that they're going to use to achieve it. And we will respond exactly the same way, like better than good obedient lab rats are. But the problem is, what. Well, people are a little bit unpredictable most of all they are also entrepreneurial so for example they did we didn't in this case see uh, uh, people going over to other drugs and that I think may well be as you you point out because the price differential across and the other choices that were available meant that you didn't have to go there and because I just parenthetically it's it seems to me obviously the case that addicts can be affected by price because I would say that one of the reasons why we've seen and it's only one, but certainly one reason why we've seen a decline in smoking until last year is the price, because we've seen massive increases in the price of smoking, which has led to at least a goodly number of the people who've given up smoking have been in part motivated by price. So it's not that price doesn't pay any role, but it's a question of the nature of the role and what and where it will it will send people. Also, not all addictions are equal. So. On the on this point, we didn't see them going, but we did see them. If we remember, Gary, we talked before about when people had done this before with other smaller populations, like students, when they had said, "Okay, we're not going to do allow you to pound a pound, pint nights anymore, or you're not going to do a bottle for a quid a night anymore." So we're going to get rid of those. And what happened was in, in certain places in, in in Dublin where this happened, the students didn't stop drinking abusively. They just went and started drinking cheap spirits which as a public health outcome was a really, really bad public health outcome. It was utterly predictable. And I think in this case, Gary, doesn't that report suggest that actually this is one of the things that happened here again? Yes, that there wasn't there wasn't drug substitution, as in people didn't go for other drugs, but they did change the manner in which they were drinking. They moved spirits. And the interesting thing there is that on paper, you could have that change and no other difference. 
and you could move to say, oh, well, that's not really too much of an impact. But actually, the change to spirit is going to be substantial because it changes how these people are getting drunk and how quickly they're getting drunk, how drunk they're getting. And there is one topic in this this report that it touches on. Now, it doesn't have a lot of evidence on it because it's not something it, want, it was looking at particularly. But I wanted to bring it up because it's something I had suggested would happen. And I took a great deal of shit for suggesting. And to be fair to the people who complained to me about my suggestion, it wasn't based on evidence because there was no evidence on this it was just based on a logical chain of events sure and that was me saying that i thought you could see a policy like this lead directly to increases in levels of domestic violence so there were two reasons i said that one is that when you look at at domestic violence and the causes of domestic violence obviously the cause of domestic violence is someone choosing to commit domestic violence but the risk factors for it the primary one is stressors the yeah absolutely things in the relationship that cause strain and financial stressors are a big part of that. So based on that, and based on the fact I thought you'd see a change over to spirits, which means people are getting drunker quicker, and there's more stressors, you would expect to see uh, an increase in domestic violence. It might not actualize, but you would expect it. And the interesting thing about this report is this report said, and I quote exactly here, minimum unit pricing led to increased financial strain for a substantial minority of those with alcohol dependence as they obtained extra money via methods including reduced spending on food and utility bills, increased borrowing from family, friends and pawnbrokers, running down savings or other capital and using food banks or other forms of charity. Now, when they got to the section where they were interviewing people, because this study is about qual and quant. There is sections of it where they were just um, talking to people. The people they talked to who had experience with this or lived in households with alcoholics, a significant percentage of them, they don't give the exact figure, expressed concerns that the changes brought about by MUP would cause an increased risk of intimate partner violence. So the report says these were expressed as concerns only and our data contain no information on actual violent events. The ev- existence and extent of these problems require further assessment. So we do not know if it's actualized. What we know is when you talk to people in Scotland who have experience living in these situations, they are now fearful that this violence has become more likely. Yeah, if you remember when this was being first muted and then afterwards when we came back to it, both of us, I think, had talked to people who had been brought up in households affected by abusive uh, alcohol consumption. Because, and it's ridiculous that one should have to say this, Gary, I do not in any way, shape or form minimize or misunderstand the misery that is caused by the abuse of alcohol and alcohol dependence in this country and anywhere in the world. God knows anybody who lives in this country surely will know somebody who has been uh, or a number of people who have been affected by people who abuse alcohol and, and, and are, are dependent on alcohol. The point simply is that this policy is a very bad policy and won't do anything to help that. But we talked to people. I remember talking to a number of And the comment we kept, no, it, it, this won't stop putting... 50p or five pounds or whatever on the price will not actually stop. What it will mean is, or what it would have meant in our household, should I say paraphrasing, is we would have had less money for food. We would have had less money for clothes. We would have had less money for whatever. Now, 
In a situation where you have children and you have a partner and there is less money for the household budget where people are getting to debt. And I think you got a lot of stick over this, Gary. I got a, a, some stick less where, where I was accused that in, I was in some sense justifying passing over the uh, domestic violence. It's not. You, you, you can give a con- giving a context and giving in which things are more likely to occur is not in any way to justify them. This kind of violence is unjustifiable, but it is, shall we say, predictable in some circumstances and explicable. And they all said this is going to create problems, stress, increased levels of stress, because you're going to have, uh, they're not going to cut down on the alcohol in order to make sure the kids get shoes. It's not the way it works. And it's ridiculous to think that it would. I think it, I mean, of all of the, shall we say, the unintended consequences, the idea that we, as a result of MUP, you're going to see an increased level of, of violence against intimate partners, it just seems to me to be horrific. But I wouldn't say predictable, but certainly not not surprising. The, there's an interesting thing about these um, Public Health Scotland reviews of MUP. To be fair, Gary, it's a pretty good review. It's a pretty decent, well done piece of work. It is, but what I found interesting about the, the work Public Health Scotland has done on this is, and they did the same when they were talking about cross-border trade, which they found evidence of, of, of which yeah. is, again, unsurprising. You go through the piece and they bring up all these concerns, like people involved in this think there could be an increase in domestic abuse, alcoholics are not drinking less, more family income is being spent on this. I mean, there's a talk where they're talking, part of the report where they're talking about the potential long-term impacts of MUP, Michael, they're saying it may drive down alcohol use among alcoholics because where, where we talked about there, about them going to friends, family, charities, food banks, they say they may not be sustainable, which is basically, oh, oh it's not working now, <laughs> but eventually they're going to run out of people they can get money off. So you're going to have an alcoholic with absolutely no options and no access to his drug and nobody alienated from friends and family because of abuse and uh, debt. Yeah, that's great. Could they make, they may stop drinking. I might suggest that they may make other choices which are even more horrible than what we previously speculated on. So you read through these reports and they bring up all of these issues and you get to the end and you're like, so this is going just horribly. And then there will be a line in it saying that the policy has proven itself to be an effective uh, means of advancing public health. And every time I get to it, I'm, it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. you ever see those reviews for, uh, you know, a car, a movie, a game, where it's very clear that there was a certain score going to be assigned to that, regardless of what happened, like a 9 out of 10. But when you read the body of the text, it's like, this thing is a piece of crap. A high score was going to be given. It's kind of like that. Like, here's a... So here's um, a quote from this report, Michael, which again says that MUP has proven itself to be an effective means of advancing its stated goals. Here's a quote from it. There is considerable uncertainty and justifiable concern regarding the impact of MUP on people with alcohol dependence. Could you just read that again? I, I genuinely, I think that's worth reading again. There is considerable uncertainty and justifiable concern regarding the impact of MUP on people with alcohol dependence. <laughs> In other words, this policy, which is designed to improve uh, outcomes from a public health perspective, especially for people who are who are uh, alcohol dependent, is not just possibly not working. It's not even neutral. It may be actually bad for them. But no, here's another quote from Michael. 
And this is in the section assessing the effectiveness of MUP amongst people drinking at harmful levels. The lack of evidence in this project for this specific reduction, despite clear evidence that people drinking at harmful levels experience large price increases, introduces greater uncertainty as to whether this policy is achieving its intended effects. <laughs> this study then goes on to say later <laughs> greater that it is good. achieving its stated effects. And they did the same with cross-border shopping. You look at it and you're like, this is a mess. And at the end, they're like, that's all working fantastically. And there's a part in the study, which I think may explain this, where they're talking about the people who conducted the study and they're, they're bigging up the experience these people had uh, with the policy and saying that many of these people were involved in the public face of bringing this policy in. You know, they were going out in public, they are going out in media, talking about its benefits. And the study is then saying, you know, this is a great thing. These people are intimately aware of it. And you just sort of go, or, or you are letting the people who pushed for this policy review it. And so you, <laughs> you get the results and yes. then you get the, but it's all going fantastic. It's all going swimmingly. And I, I think I, this is the second or third report from them where they have done this. And it's kind of bizarre. It's like they have two different sets of people reading the reports or writing the reports. And it's in the sections you know, where a policymaker might read, Michael. Yeah. That it's talked about as achieving its intended results. But when you start going into like the weeds of it and the actual subsections, then they're like, ah, oh, well, you know, who knows what's happening? God knows. We don't. But if you if you were a policymaker only reading you know the the, the the summaries, well obviously that's working fantastically. For example, if you're Stephen Donnelly, I'm sure that's the bit you'll read. Yeah, if you're a politician, that's what you read, and then you can you can you can always quote that. You can say, well, they did this, and they say that it's you know shown to be effective as a policy tool for its intended results. Actually, you you won't read because they don't read reports. What what happen is their civil servants will get a lovely highlighter. And will highlight those bits of the report that they should read because then they can say they've read those bits of the report and they're not going to be annoyed or infected or bothered by the horror other bits in the report there's is it 1984 this reminds me of that thing in 1984 i think it is where there's something like for example they announce this week the chocolate ration will be increased from three ounces to two and a half ounces and it's a little bit like that you know this policy is failing on all fronts, but we think it's succeeding. So we're going to push ahead and say it's a great policy. And I can guarantee you those bits that you'd highlight will appear in the mouths of our politicians within a short space of time. And if anybody actually would bother and could get close enough to say to them, yeah, but Minister, it also says uh, this policy ain't working. Drinkers ain't drinking less. In fact, it might be bad for them and there's all sorts of other shit happening. They look at you with blank astonishment and say, no, 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 that's not in the report. They would have told me. Anyway, we know this is a good policy, so there can't be bad consequences. Because Irish politicians, I think, increasingly operate, not on an inductive or an empirical level, Gary, but an axiomatic level. They know what the right thing is, and what the right thing is couldn't possibly have bad consequences. Mm. Now, they did... Um they did say they found little evidence of certain things like, you know, homemade alcohol or stealing alcohol or stopping alcohol, which is an odd one because people have been saying <laughs> if this works and alcoholics stop, then they'll go into withdrawal. And alcohol withdrawal is actually one of the few types of um, drug withdrawal that, that can kill you. It's very nasty. I was, I was told years ago by somebody who worked in the area of uh, drug addiction, dependence, all that kind of thing, that coming off booze was so much harder than coming off heroin. 
there's there's some substances where the the withdrawal is just is simply just substantially more dangerous than others or more drawn out. Heroin is not a pleasant withdrawal at all. Alcohol is absolutely awful. Benzos are um, incredibly destructive to come off. But there's just things like that. But that was the um, that was the that was the Scotland report. Now, interestingly enough, Michael, I did write to the Department of Health in February. I think sorry, I think I submitted a, an FOI to them in January, and I asked them for a documentation they had related to the bringing in of MUP and drug substitution, domestic abuse, basically all of the negatives that you would have assumed they would have had to talk about. And I was told that uh, I could get no records because no records existed. Oh. So I did also reach <laughs> out to them when this study came out, basically saying, look, the study has come out. Uh, are you guys still confident in the pr- in the policy? And also, what did you bring in uh, with it when you brought this in to ensure that these, poli- that these impacts don't happen here? Now, I know they yeah. didn't bring in anything. But I would like to give them the chance to at least say, you know, we tried doing something. Look, I'll, I'll put a link to the study below. It's uh, it's well worth reading. It's well, I mean, it's about two hundred and ten pages long. The executive summaries are well worth reading. The highlights are well worth reading. But yeah, that is that is the. I mean, the Scottish the Scottish MUP was explicitly used as a basis for the bringing in of MUP in Ireland. And when they brought it in, they were speaking very highly of it in Ireland, but. The uh, MUP in Scotland had been subject to an ongoing review. The legislation will fade in 2024 unless the Scottish Parliament votes to extend it. So Mm -hmm. the Irish government was talking about it and its massive positive effects. But there had been an ongoing uh, review of it by the um, health authorities as well. And they hadn't released their final findings. I still think they don't. They haven't released their final findings. These are just parts of their findings. So... Basically, we brought it in based on a policy which even the people who brought in the policy had not managed to fully evaluate yet. But just to, before we go, and we need to finish up on this, I suppose. Isn't there a fun? Isn't that a fundamental difference? This is a policy which, at the end of a certain period, we should have been in a position to say fairly definitively, this worked or this didn't work, because we had specific policy aims. Right? There was a recognition that this was going to cost certain people that were who did not need to modify their behavior substantially but you know it was that was considered to be an acceptable cost in relation to the hoped for positive outcomes but you don't what you do is you put a time limit on you say at the end of this we're going to review it and say if it worked now i'm not listen i'm not naive it's perfectly possible that they'll say it worked anyway even though it didn't but at least in theory they're saying we'll test this at the end of it and if it doesn't work because it introduced both the reduction in freedom and a reduction and an increase in a sense an indirect tax on people who didn't need to have modify their behavior well if it doesn't we'll get rid of it and that at least has that's a respectable position here we, we don't we'll just fuck it in and we'll leave it and we won't even consider going back and looking at it we may there may be some vague just on us now of course gary and we won't go there unless, of course, we're doing a review of legislation that we have every intention of keeping and beefing up. But we, if we do that, we're going to do it in private, in camera, and in mo- the most outrageously non-democratic, anti-parliamentarian way you could out- imagine outside of the former Soviet Union. If you've agreed to bring in a policy like MUP, and you're bringing it in anyway, because politically you, you have to, well, then it has to come in anyway. And if you create research that can be FOI'd, you could create a stick to you know beat your own back with. It's like the amnesty for illegal immigrants. The department said they had research. 
I tried to FOI it for months and months, and at every step it became clear that the department did not have research. But why would you have research? Because the research would have simply shown that we've no idea of the numbers and that something like this could be an inward draw on further illegal immigration. So you never write that down because you know it's going to be bad. Now, that does mean that you do have to implement policies that could have massively wide-ranging impacts without actually knowing what's happening, but you probably got a good enough idea. But that's, I'm sorry, that's exactly the point I was making earlier. They're no longer actually interested in inductive reasoning. They're not interested in empirical evidence. It's axiomatic. Doing what they wanted to do with the uh, illegals in the country was axiomatically good. So what was, what, what was the point in spending time and effort and money on going around looking for some kind of empirical data, which we all know, let's face it, come on, empirical data is just another excuse for the bourgeois patriarchy to maintain its position of power and privilege, because that's just privileging one form of knowledge. And there are many, many different forms of knowledge, Gary. Actually, there is one thing I found particularly interesting. Well, I've never been able to chase it up. I can't remember if I got this from one of my own FOIs or if someone sent it to me having put in an FOI themselves. That's just an yes. interesting little tidbit. The department did a report uh, on this, basically a very high-level overview looking at um, illegal immigration. And part of that report pointed out that the Migrants' Rights Council of Ireland had been looking for a meeting with the minister under Chatham House rules. And the civil servants recommended that the minister take this meeting. Now, Chatham House rules, for those who don't know, are basically a set of rules that say, if you have a meeting with someone, that you cannot say that they said something to you. You can say that you were made aware of information more generally, but you can't give the source of it and you can't give certain identifying information. And Michael, I do wonder why a charity such as the Migrants' Rights Council of Ireland would want to have a meeting with the minister, which the minister could then use to give out further information, but could never say it came from the MRCI. Mm. I just think that's a bit, you know, it's not, it's just interesting more than anything else. I don't know what it means. No, but it means something. Yeah, it, it clearly means something. There was something that they were not comfortable having their name attached to, but wanted to make it known politically or publicly through the minister. And I don't know what that was. Yes. It just reminds me that, like, I mean, maybe it was something about the research the MRCI has done, but it just reminded me of um, when I was trying to find the name of... So for those who, who aren't aware of this department, when they brought in the Amnesty for Legal Immigrants, said that they had multiple reports on it. When I asked them, they couldn't tell me what those reports were. They couldn't send me copies. They couldn't even tell me the names. But the Migrants' Rights Centre of Ireland was flagged as the, the people who wrote those reports. Now, I managed to get on the phone with a couple of the migrant rights uh, people by basically just, you know, they don't I don't call them a lot, so they don't recognise my number. And then you get talking to them and they realise who they're talking to. And you can just hear the sort of, ah, fuck. <laughs> I think it was one of their policy people or their communications manager. And I asked them about the reports. They said they did them on hand. And I said, could you give me the names of them? And the response was, I can't remember the names. So... No one has the reports. Mm. The people who wrote them can't even remember what the reports were called. But everyone is certain those reports are real, Michael. It's just they don't turn up in FOIs or discussions or actually get mentioned anywhere because they're obviously not real. Of course they're real. I know a woman whose son works for them and he said he had seen those studies. 
So I have no doubt that this this was this was real. Did you see, by the way, uh, the Swedish ME was the Swedish MEP went after Michal Martin saying that this that an amnesty of this type would drive illegal immigration into Europe. Yeah, it's almost like the the <laughs> ideas of what will draw illegal immigration are fairly well established. And yes, he's obviously right, but we just don't want to say it. Because it's a good thing. Is he some kind of bad man? I, I, I read the report. I read the report in a couple of places, and I kept meaning to look up to see if he was a bad man or not. But I never got round to it, so I don't know. Is he a bad man? Do you know, or did you not get to see that either? I was from the Swedish Democrats, so I, I think yes. So he's a bad man. Well, then you could discount anything he says to say. Actually, just as we mentioned uh, foreign news, something I wanted to mention: uh, a piece of Irish and British news, Michael, that's now yes. gone foreign. What's that? According to the Washington Post, there have been reports of needle spiking in multiple European countries. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Now, this, for those who don't recall for the listener, is uh, it started in England, then it came to Ireland. It was talk about women being uh, pricked with syringes, which had been loaded with various drugs and were uh, allegedly being used to spike people. And it came out and I said it was clearly false because it's clearly false. I did... I think I did put forward the option that perhaps someone somewhere had done this for some reason. But the idea that this was some growing scourge was obviously ridiculous because we I suppose we've gone through this before. But there are many limitations to trying to drug someone through a syringe that are not there from trying to put something in someone's drink. And that's ignoring the fact that nearly all uh, drink spiking cases are unsubstantiated. And those that have been tested usually have no drugs in their system, which makes sense. Because why would you drug someone who is drugging themselves? If you want to drug them, just buy them more alcohol. And you're not going to end up with a conviction. That was a comment, wasn't it, the fame of the uh, the chief consultant in the accident and emergency unit? Was it, was it James's? I can't remember. He said he was being interviewed about uh, spiking, you know, that people having their drugs spiked. And he said there is a, there is a drug which is for spiking and for out there. Uh, why I see it all the time and they got all excited oh, what's that? it's called alcohol I liked when uh, they brought on medical professionals in England and in Ireland onto the media and it was clear that these people did not believe this was happening at least not in any systemic way but didn't want to come out and say well actually what's happened is be- there's been some sort of uh, social contagion and a ton of women who said this happened to them but just didn't happen to them because no one wants to be that guy no as regards this particular story, the, the, the needle sticking story, one thing I think we, when we talked about this the first time, I think we, we, we did speculate about, uh, I, I think talked to you about it, was the fact that you couldn't exclude the possibility that if this got enough traction in the media, it became a big enough story, that it mightn't actually inspire some people, either some cretins or some psychopaths, to actually try it. As oh, the, uh, people who might say, "Well, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't had that one before. Let's go and try it." But I just want there's a. It's been reported all over the press. Uh, there was a, a case of there's a guy who's been arrested in Toulon who's being investigated now. I I, I can't. I haven't been able to find any hard uh, stuff on what he's supposed to have done. But one quote which I did enjoy it was this was reported. In the Cotidiano Nazionale in, in Italy, uh, it, it wasn't, shall we say, I, I didn't see it at least reported in the most respectable uh, newspapers, but there's a, a, a nursing paper, so should we say a professional medical thing, 
as it were. And uh, they're, they're really going good guns over it and giving out and saying it's a shocking, it's horror, and they should introduce extra laws, Gary, because that always solves the problem, doesn't it? Let's introduce more laws about this and heavy crimes. But in the middle of it all, it says, Nel sangue nell'urine delle vittime non sono state trovate nessuna traccia di drug. In other words, no trace of drugs was found in the blood or the urine of any of the victims. Now, I like the fact that they're using the word victims, even though it says there was no trace of drugs in their blood or the urine. It then goes on to say in a slightly what's going on here tone, one can imagine. Why haven't they tested the hair? Because the hair, Gary, as it points out, can contain traces of drugs for up to 90 days after ingestion. But I'm not exactly clear on why that would be a good thing, since presumably these victims are turning up like the day after when they wake up in that strange flat or in the middle of that park and going, oh, where, how, how did I get here? I must have been drugged by a man who stuck me with a needle. I wouldn't have thought that you'd need it to wait. You go, go to the hair. I think blood or, or, or urine would have been good enough. In this, yeah, they use victim because everyone always uses victim, which is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine because victim presupposes a crime. But I yes. remember I had a bit of a back and forth with, with uh, Regina Doherty when these reports first started coming out in Ireland. And it was about a particular woman's case. And she came out and she was talking about how, you know, this is an increased threat for women and women should be afraid of this. And I said it was irresponsible to do that because there was no proof that this has actually happened. And you could just be spreading. And her response was, the difference between me and you, Gary, is that I believe victims, which is a facile point, because obviously I believe victims. I just don't presuppose that anyone who claims something is a victim. And that that was the that particular case. That person had claimed that you went to the guards. And when I reached out to the guards, the guards said that they had no reports. Now, later reports were made to the guards. But as the Irish examiner revealed a little bit ago, None of them led anywhere. So there were multiple reports to the guards eventually. Didn't go anywhere. And a number of people seem to have lied about this on uh, social media. The interesting thing is when you look at the, the research on drink spiking, yeah. you get two sets of results. One set of results says it's an incredibly common thing and happens all the time. And one set of results says mostly this is just people getting really drunk and because of the properties of alcohol and its ability to stop memory formation... What is happening is you say you've only had two drinks, but you cannot remember the next six. And then you wake <laughs> up on the ground and you think you were spiked. And the actual difference between those is the studies that say there's a very, very high percentage are studies where they've asked people, have they been spiked? And the studies that say there's a very, very low percentage, and in many cases I've actually found no cases other than just someone drinking themselves into a stupor accidentally, have been medical studies where people have turned up at the hospital within a time frame where they could realistically be tested for the common drugs used in something like that. A doctor from one of the larger London hospitals, I remember being interviewed on the TV about this, as you say, being frustratingly and uh, undramatic and for the uh, interviewers. And he said, I've, in the 20,000 people that I've seen in casualty, I have never come across an incident where I believe someone was spiked. Many thousands of people who were blind drunk, falling down drunk, passed out drunk, but spiked. No. This is not to say, Gary, that there aren't people who get, who get spiked. No, and obviously if someone claims they're spiked, you should take it seriously and you should investigate it. In the same way, if someone says someone attacked them with a needle, you should obviously treat it seriously. 
But I think it is, again, it's one of those things that people do not want to come and say what they believe, which is that, by and large, it's not a very common thing. In fact, it's, it seems to be very, very rare. And most of the time, people should just be concerned with their own alcohol consumption. Because if you say that, the very first thing that's going to be said is that you are calling, particularly women who said this happened to them, liars. Which is not what you're doing. You're saying they were mistaken. And if they're mistaken, well, then they were legitimately mistaken. It's all kind of a part of a pattern where we we have bogeymen of different times at different But it's always but ultimately the same. There are strangers. There's somebody who we don't know who wishes us ill and we have to be frightened and we need to protect ourselves against this stranger. So, for example, uh, we create a terrible sense of danger, of threat for women when there is a tragic case of some of a woman being attacked and perhaps murdered. But the reality is most women if, who experience violence, they will experience it from somebody that they know and indeed know quite well. In fact, that's, I suspect, true, Gary, of all violence. You're most likely to be assaulted or abused by somebody that you know. The violence from a stranger is far rarer. Yes, although when they say that you're more likely to be to be violated or assaulted by someone you know, it should be noted that there's a, that's not to say you're going to be assa- assaulted or violated by your friends. You can know people <laughs> at a casual level. Well, yeah, I, I'd, I'd also like to say that that would kind of affect the definition of what one's friends were. Gary, we, we, we have to talk about, because it's such a lovely day, we have to talk about the lovely opinion poll that the nice people and behaviour and attitudes have given us. We do, but Michael, just before that, I just want to briefly mention um, a, a disability-related story. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Just, yeah, just I, I just want to mention this briefly because I thought it, it's interesting to highlight. So one of the things I've been doing with Gript is trying to put together some ideas for video series, Michael. You know, little 15 to 30-minute kind of uh, mini-documentaries on things. Mini-docs, yeah. I, love, I, I like a mini-doc. And there's one we're hoping to do next week. We're hoping to go down to the family. And it's it's about a disability case. It's about a, a nine-year-old boy who has a rare, possibly unique form of um, muscular dystrophy. And it is progressive. There's no cure. There's no real treatment. Really, all you have is maintenance, and any maintenance that's lost is just permanently gone. But the issue, Michael, is this. This guy needs a a, a wheelchair to get around. And he was given a wheelchair last year. Not by the HSE. I think the charity that handles that is... What are they called? Starts with E. Oh, I was going to say Scope, but no, that's in England. Um, I don't know, Gary. I I thought Vincent de Paul would also do that kind of thing, no, it's it's. I think it's it's a charity that that subcontracts. I think effectively from the HSE to, to handle these things. So he was given a wheelchair last year. Enable could be enabled. Yeah, uh, sorry, I just don't have the the details at hand. Um, but he was given a, a wheelchair last year. That he was told it was temporary. Now, Michael, the wheelchair is too heavy for this child to move because he has mm. muscular dystrophy. So he is effectively totally immobile in it. And the real kicker there, Michael, is that the brakes don't work. So. Effectively, a child who should be able to, to walk and run around, move around, but needs a wheelchair in certain circumstances, is effectively can't go out and play with his friends, can't do anything like that because he needs constant uh, oversight. Because if he needs to use the wheelchair, he can't go anything. His mother was saying that the, the chair was, I think, three people had had it before. And so it's slightly damaged because it was only meant to be a temporary solution. So she was saying uh. when he tries to use it, and like he, if he can drive himself forward short distances, the chair will drive splinters of uh, metal into his hands. 
Oh my god. So they said that they got this chair and then they were put on a course for wheelchair skills. Just, you know, show him how to use it. And when he got there, the, the people running the train, they realised that he can't use the wheelchair. Like, there's nothing here. And so they have spent pretty much the last year trying to get this next wheelchair. Because he's a child and he's growing, this wheel, the wheelchair he gets will last two and a half years, they say, about that. Right. And Verona Murphy brought up his case in the doll last month. And a year-long process, Michael, uh, seems to have resolved itself very quickly. And it looks like he will now get a wheelchair, hopefully within the next 10 weeks, because he needs to be kind of measured for it and it needs to actually be, be properly done. And this is because Verona brought it up in the doll. Verona brought it up in the doll. And you got the standard sort of, we are committed to the welfare of children. Which yeah. are every time a case like this comes up. And shockingly enough, Michael, at a system level, this doesn't really ever seem to change. Cases like this come up again and again and again. And actually, they seem to be coming up more now than they were a couple of years ago. Because I think the HSE mm-hmm. and, and the health service are just growing increasingly dysfunctional about these things. And here's the, the real kicker, Michael. So it took them a year to get signed off from this because apparently had to go between multiple groups and the HSE I think was involved in some capacity. Would you like to know how much the wheelchair would have cost that was causing all these problems? Is it motorised? I don't actually know. Well, it must be some, I don't know, know, four four or five thousand? Four thousand euro. So for a year, they basically ensured that a child who should be able to go out and play with friends but needs this in case was effectively entirely housebound for four thousand euro. And what's the Health, I mean, I know it's not really a relevant or a fair question, but what is the health budget in this country? X billions, and it's been going up pretty dramatically. However, strangely, according to certain metrics anyway, the amount that is spent actually on uh, people getting better and having uh, improved quality of life doesn't seem to be expanding at the same rate. And rather more going on the old admin. Then again, that's a very easy way to be, I think. But it's dysfunctional. It's dysfunctional. We've known it's dysfunctional for a very long time, Gary. I remember you, I mean, this is years ago, talking to people who've been involved in the setting up of the of the HSE and the opinion being bruised about by these same people was it was unsalvageable and it should be knocked down and a new structure built in its place. And I think it's just re- it's a great sucking thing. It's going to take more and more money for less and less outcome. And people like this chap are going to fall through... Not the cracks, but the crevices that exist in an increasingly dysfunctional bureaucracy. Given the amount of money the HSE has just lost or forgotten they had for a while, you kind of figured they'd find something for a wheelchair in it. But I think the real kind of sticker with these cases is that when media attention is brought onto it, and not just in this story, there have been multiple stories I've seen in the media where the grip have brought up, where suddenly things that just did not work became possible very, very quickly. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Well, partially the problem is that you have situations like this. But I think the actual real damning part of it is that when it is brought up and there's media attention and there's possible political pushback or the department might look bad, these problems largely resolve themselves very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. If they can do that, then that has certain implications for why it wasn't being done before. Whereas if it was the case, it simply couldn't be done. That's terrible, but it's, it's a thing. Whereas if it turns out, actually, if there was significant, if there was sufficient will, this could have been done at any time, and we just basically cut a child off from physiotherapy for a year, ensured he couldn't do anything because why not? That doesn't look great. It looks, it looks very, very bad indeed. It doesn't. A child for whom this time is very, very precious 
<laughs> this is just, just it's not this is not good because it displays and I, I I wouldn't blame any individual human being involved but it because it just it does seem to be the nature of what happens when you get increasingly layered regulation bound large bureaucracies it seems to be just it's like a this is a, an endemic disease in those kinds of organisms and you have to be very very careful and very vigilant to avoid that happening and maybe there is an insufficiency of vigilance in this case here so i i it's an interesting case this is uh the boy's name is uh leo dixon he's, he's a nine so i'm hoping we can have a, a gripped film team go down to him next week and have a chat with him and his mother and maybe a couple of the tds involved in this and uh, I, we will offer uh to talk to the hse i suspect okay. that they will not say yes I'm sorry, it's Enable. Enable was the charity involved. Uh, I suspect they will not want to talk about this. What I've noticed from talking to parents of children who have disabilities and, and situations like this, the HSE and their people are very fond of telling these people whenever anything goes wrong that this is a once-off. You know, this is just a random fluke of events which no one could have accounted for. And then you realise, actually, this is happening so often. It can't be a random uh, confluence of events. This is just extreme levels of systemic failure. Yes. But anyway, I just wanted to to mention it as it was a, a case I was working on during the week. And mm-hmm. if we do go down for the interview, hopefully we'll have a video up in a you know a week or two kind of thing. But yeah, there's many cases like this. Um, these cases, I think, are particularly bad, as are the cases involving um, uh, spinal bifida. Those are just depressing cases. <sighs> but anyway, that's the, uh, that's the current state of the... Uh, of the health service after 10 years of uh, Fine Gael being in government. So opinion polls, Michael. How long Fine Gael will stay in government is a fun subject. Yes, we have another record-breaking opinion poll, Gary. Uh, this one comes out with... I think this is the highest recorded number for Sinn Féin in any opinion poll. This is the Behaviour behavior and Attitudes poll uh, published in the Sunday Times. So Sinn Féin, 37%. Yes. Fine Gael, 23. Fine Fáil, 22. Sorry, Sinn Féin, 37% plus 1. Fine Gael, 23 plus 3. Fine Fáil, 22 minus 2. Labour, 5. Green Party, 4 plus 2. People for Profit Solidarity, 1 minus 1. Ain't 2, 1, no change. Social Democrats, 0 minus 2. And <laughs> Independents and others, 8 minus 1. Now, I think before we discuss this poll, Michael, I do want to mention yes. one story that came out, uh, I think, last week. And it was, um, John Drennan had it. It was a better report that Michael Ring, the former minister, has written for Fine Gael. Now, I haven't seen this report, but what John Drennan says about it, I should probably ask for that report, actually, now I think about it. Eh. Uh, four out of five Fine Gael TDs, their seats are at risk. Which is not to say they'll lose, but they're in for a dogfight. Mm. That's pretty bad if you're in government and eighty percent of your seats are at risk. Well, I've been saying for I've been saying for some time that everybody has been so concentrated on the impending disaster for Fianna Fáil that they've kind of been ignoring the issues for Fine Gael. But talking to Fine Gael rural TDs, I can tell you that there is a there is a belief out there that the the rural in Fine Gael TD could very soon be a, a species on the highly endangered list. One thing I've, I've noticed from talking about the Fine, particularly the Finnegan rural TDs that I haven't found in the Finnefall rural TDs is the Finnefall rural TDs know that things are going badly. 
Yeah. But seem to have just largely accepted that things are going badly and sure, what can you do? The Fine Gael Rural TDs, you get a sense of, um, you know, I've started to think about it and I just really think I'd like to spend some more time with my family. <laughs> like a lot of them, you kind of get the sense that they're looking at this and going, do I want to do this? Like, do I want to run into this next election with things as badly as they are, with Sinn Féin doing as well as they are, spend however much of my own money and lose? Or do I want to just bow out gracefully? I, the problem is that much like alcohol and tobacco, politics is a highly addictive substance. Particularly when you have no transferable skills. Exactly. A lot of these people, they look like they might be able to do something else. They might, in theory, at some stage have been involved in some profession. But at this stage, they are very, they look, what, what are they going to be able to get to do that's going to pay them the same amount of money? Now, Gary, I can tell you, there are times when former TDs and former other things leave politics and get jobs that pay even more doing things than you look at. How in the name of the seven gods did this happen? It is a baffling thing. But a lot of them, it's just they're addicted. My, I predict that in the next period, certainly in the period, let's say six months running up to the next general election, you are going to see a hell of a lot of independent Fine Gael TDs. Now, they may not be officially independent Fine Gael, but they're going to be, essentially, they're going to be putting a large amount of clear blue water between themselves and the official party line on agriculture, on planning, say, planning restrictions on one-off housing in rural areas, on the cost of energy, on the nitrates directives, on the price of diesel, on turf cutting, on a whole myriad of issues. Now, if Fine Gael has an ounce of sense, Gary, and I don't believe it does, but if it has an ounce of sense, it will quietly tolerate an outburst of independent thinking across the nation. So you can be the independent Fine Gael TD for West Limerick or the independent Fine Gael TD for Donegal, the independent Fine Gael TD for Carlo. And in this map, you may be able to save your seat. You may even be able to save your soul. <laughs> but if they don't, okay, I, I have always said, and I, I, I still believe, when it really when it comes to elections, until you're getting maybe at most two or three months out from an election, people really don't think about it. So, you know, but, and I know it's this horrible anecdotal thing. I just keep meeting so many people from traditional Fine Gael backgrounds or people who are working in with TDs or councillors across who say that they are encountering a degree of anger from their traditional voters that they've never really come across before. Because it's not a question that they disagree with policies. It feels like this, this is what I'm, I'm told, that people feel, first of all, that they're ignored at best or disrespected, that they are not considered important and that their concerns are really not of interest to the party. It's like they've been forgotten. And remember, the middling, large-sized farmer down in the Golden Vale was the heart of that Fine Gael, was the heart of Fine Gael for many for, for a very long time because they, them and the professionals, and the professionals, have, a lot of them have migrated to Labour, not to the Social Democrats. Oh, it couldn't happen to a nice group of people. A lot of those people have migrated to Labour. 
But that rural vote, that traditional historic Fine Gael rural vote, it's like they make the same mistake the Fine Gael, Phil Fowler are making, like to think that there are no seats. The only seats in Ireland, Gary, are in Dublin. Do you get that? When, you, you know, when you're talking to people in Mount Street or connected, do you get that feeling sometimes they, they, it's almost like they believe the only TDs in Ireland are in Dublin and all strategies must be dedicated to keeping the vote in Dublin. There's something I just wanted to address, Gary. You might comment on this because you're good, gooder than me on this stuff. One of the curiosities is that Philly Fall are down two on 22. Now, we should point out they're on 22 on this. What were they in the last poll? In the other one, 15? Yeah, about that. 15, 40, something like that. 14 maybe, because they were 17. Anyway, but below, they would be a lot happier with this one than the other one. Not happy with this, but happier. And we have been, at least I have been, a critic of Michal Martin and the strategies and the direction that he has taken for Fianna Fáil. From there, from my opinion of what would be more a successful electoral strategy, but, you know, a gobshite on the ditch talking about a hurling match, basically, is what I am, and I understand that. But there you go, I get an opinion. Anyway... They say, but look at Michal Martin. Michal Martin's approval ratings are up in the 40s. Michal Martin is one of the most, is, if not, I think actually the most popular in this poll of the leaders. This is what you're saying is nonsense. But my question is, yeah, Mary Lou, I think, has gone over him, but I think that he was, he had been consistently, but he still is up there pretty well, better than the others. I said, first of all, how many of the people who think that Michal Martin is doing a good job are people who have voted for or would ever consider voting for Fianna Fáil. And secondly, to what extent do people who are supportive of Martin think that Martin, or understand to what extent Martin has been responsible for driving the strategy and policies of Fianna Fáil in the last 10 years? The fact that Martin has a certain level of personal popularity, to me, doesn't touch the issue that the strategies that he has personally driven have been largely responsible. At the very best, Gary, for the failure of Fianna Fáil to recover to some kind of moderate level of success. I mean, not I'm not saying to grow back up into the 30s or the 40s, but at least to maintain some kind of presence in the high 20s. I think the all of this the, the stuff on um, popularity measures of leaders in Ireland, I think, is, is largely nonsensical. There are certain situations where it might be useful. Like Sinn Féin is probably quite interested in Mary Lou. And how she does in that, but that's because they want to, you know, detoxify the party, and the leader actually has a key role to play in that. Yes. But we talk about them as if we're America, and their presidential approval ratings, and they're not. It doesn't matter if you're popular in Ireland if your popularity, as I said, does nothing for the party, because your job in Ireland is very much more. You need to ensure the party wins rather exactly. than you need to be popular. So yeah, you can be as popular as you want. That's great, but. It's not doing anything. And I know we have talked a lot, Michael, about the directions Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael could go and the problems we have with them. And they may just be led by our own biases. Absolutely. But ultimately, at the end of the day, both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael chose particular policy directions and they do not seem to have worked. They seem to have been disastrous. So we may not be right about what they should have done, but they, you, but that's a possibility. But they were absolutely wrong. And we can show that. I mean, Fine Gael, for instance, we have Leo coming out again saying, talking about the squeezed middle, talking about the need for tax breaks. Fine Gael have been in government for 10 years. Yeah. I cannot remember off the top of my head any considerable tax decrease or tax cut of any kind that Fine Gael have brought in, at least none that I found personally impactful. 
No, so no. now as we get near another transition point, suddenly we start hearing about, oh, well, we're going to lower your taxes. We had Pasco come out and just bald face lie to people and say he had never campaigned for the removal of the USC when he is on record and had sent out press releases saying that he wanted to get rid of the USC. In fact, it was going to be a central a central plank of their uh, their campaign. Yeah, it was a central plank of the 2016 campaign. And now Pascal has come out and said, no, I never said that. Well, the problem there is that there's a paper trail, <laughs> Pascal, and I believe there's a couple of recordings of him saying it as well. But an interesting note, Michael, when Pascal came out and said that, I wrote a, a story on it, which basically just said, here are the quotes from him, from his press releases. Here's what he said. Absolutely yes. untrue. He is... I don't think I said he was lying in the piece. I said he was mistaken because you, yeah, you don't want to say someone is lying without actually knowing what their mental state is. But the more I think about it, the more I, I think it could fairly be described as lying. Grift were the only media source in Ireland to publish an article pointing out that he had previously said that we should get rid of the USC. Joe.ie came the closest in that they kind of mentioned that Fine Gael had had a different policy years ago, but even they didn't say pascal himself did say this what he's saying now really? is absolutely false no it was mentioned in a lot of newspapers like the irish times the irish independent covered it that pascal had said this but not that he'd ever said anything different so like if you can just do that like why bother actually trying to do something or being honest about it if you can just lie like that and have nothing happen to you and it It'll be reported, but no one seems to even remember. And like, Michael, this was not a long time ago. This was the 2016 election. The, the, the nonce, I, I don't know how people can maintain with a straight face this nonsense of Fine Gael as, you know, the squeezed middle, the party of the, the middle classes. The, God almighty, I've heard people describe centre-right conservative me, other than the fact that when, okay, Mutton reliving and relitigating ancient history, like what Noonan did, and more to the point, what Noonan failed to do when he was given the opportunity as Minister for Finance and that government generally in 2011 in the, in the post-crash period, where there was a real opportunity to do some radical change to the structure of the of Irish government and Irish budgets. When Lenin had done all the heavy lifting, all the really nasty stuff had been done by Lenin. And then what did, what did uh, he, uh, what was it, two-thirds borrowing, one-third tax, and then went on and decided, in a way which showed that he had no clue what he was talking about, but also at heart had no respect for saving and for property, which was he basically plundered people's private pensions, which I thought was a shameful thing to do, but also... I couldn't see how it was. In an, an age where we talk about equi equi uh, equity and equality, it was an absolutely discriminatory tax, um, which cost far more than he actually said it would because he didn't understand, he understood nothing about the nature of liquidating cash from pension funds. But leaving that aside, uh, they've, they've made, no they've done nothing. They've done nothing to suggest that uh, they represent what would be in any other country the sort of standard centre-right, free market, conservative type of party. Anyway, Gary, we are at 37 in Sinn Féin, and I think we need to maybe draw uh, over there, just with a simple comment. At, thir at 37% in the polls, Sinn Féin are edging ever closer, ever closer to the magic number. And at 37, now listen, it's an opinion poll. 
if you looked at the opinion polls at the last election, Gary, at this stage out in the cycle, what were Sinn Féin? All I know is they were, Sinn Féin were very, very much behind where they ended up being when the actual election was held. It may well be that Sinn Féin are on 37% today and when it comes to the actual election, they could collapse. I've heard people say that and yes, they, they've traditionally fallen a bit in the actual elections. And I won't be surprised if as we get to the election and things, they start getting more and more attacks, they lose a couple of percentage points. But I also wouldn't be surprised if as we get closer to the election, the undecideds move to Sinn Féin. Yeah, and that we actually may see a movement towards a a kind of a a more historic reconfiguration where all those little parties in the middle start getting squeezed and squeezed to the point where they start hitting one and two percent and without any without particularly strong individual showings may start finding that their tds are disappearing around the country and we end up much more with a with a, a three-party state than we have had for quite some time here's a here's a question for you michael fun little question let's assume in the next election that you have a choice between Fine Gael coming into government and Sinn Féin coming into government. Which do you think is more likely to cut your income tax? My income tax? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say Sinn Féin. I would also say Sinn Féin, based on what we've seen of what their voters want. Now, your income tax, they mightn't, because I'm sure you're one of those guys, you're probably over. What, you want, what are, you on, are you under 200k these days, Gary? I have a comfortable existence. Gary's on at least 200k from Gript, and then of course he gets another 50, 60k from his Patreon on this, so I think the top earners might get a bit of a scutcheon. I don't know. I think that people over whatever Sinn Féin decides is wealthy. But the lower earners, if, yeah, I would say you're more likely to get, you get a, uh, a cut from Chinners, and that's also reflective of the values of their voters. They'll start saying things about cost of living and the need to protect the most vulnerable, and then they'll end up cutting tax. Where Fine Gael will talk about the need to reward people for work and then preside over a system which sees <laughs> you pay, in some cases, over 50% of your income past a certain level to the government. And they will talk endlessly about how they will fix this, but they'll never fucking do it. Which then leads to the point of, why would I vote for you for any reason if I can't trust what you're saying to me? It's almost as if politicians say things that they don't believe. Yep, no, Michael, that's, that's always happened to an extent. But the last 10 years of Fine Gael has taken the piss. Like, there was always a little bit of, yes, we've got a coalition par- partner and, you know, we can't do certain things. But I have never seen a governing party jettison so much of their campaign. Like, the USC thing. When they said it, it was obvious they didn't believe it. Because they were smart enough to have looked at the figures and realised how much of a problem it was. The party as a whole, I think, in that case, you could fairly say just lied to people. Knowing that they could never do it. And so Pascal was against the policy before it was Fine Gael's election plank. Then he was for mm-hmm. it. Then he was immediately against it again. Because it was clear it couldn't be done. So, like, yes, things are said that are perhaps... You, know, you spin something to look as good as possible. Problematic policies go because of coalition uh, partners. But you don't bin your entire fucking manifesto for three elections in a row. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, you do if you're finna get. But before we go, Gary, I just want to very briefly just observe um, Labour's, the, the Ivan, in this opinion poll, the Ivana ba- Bounce seems to have um, fallen rather flat. 
But most of all, I think it, at 2%, that was, you know, a reasonable possibility of taking a couple of seats. At 0%, you might say, Gary, that the Social Democrats might be in some kind of electoral trouble. What's your expert opinion on that? If they were to get 0%, do you think that they would have, uh, they would lose some seats? Maybe. Here's the, here, but here's the problem. When you look at, at things like the Social Democrats and the smaller parties, it doesn't matter if you have, well, it does matter now because state funding is tied to it. But you can have 0% nationally and still get two or three TDs elected as long as everything is concentrated in those areas. Yeah, you get your, you, have, you have three constituencies and you get everything there. But the problem is, Gary, if you see a decline from 2%, 3%, and at that end, it's more like, I mean, that's probably pretty tightly. You're... You're in trouble. I mean, well, if you see that kind of decline generally. Here's, I think, the, the thing is, could the TDs who are standing for the Social Democrats win as independents? And I'd say you get the like of, you know, you've got the main two, you've got Gary Gannon. Gannon is strong in his area. You know, Maybe he could keep a seat with the Social Democrats on nothing because he'd win it as an independent. Maybe he could take it, could not. So, I mean, those people are probably secure. I, I, I understand that. I, I, I know that. But I'm also a, break, a big believer that even somebody, even somebody who's safe, even somebody who has a strong local per presence and a strong, par, a strong machine, on a bad day when the, run, when the tide is running against you nationally, it's, it becomes very, very hard to hold on to the rocks and not be swept away by the current. People, you look at people, you think, "Oh no, ah, they're safe enough. They've got." A and then the day comes if if the tide has turned against you, if your brand has become problematic, you you may actually be better off just cutting the cords and actually being independent, genuinely being independent, rather than because then you may keep votes or attract votes that you wouldn't otherwise do. Where these votes are going, it seems it's unclear to me. Is it is Sinn Fein starting to pick up some of that? shall we say, centre-left, middle-class vote that they've historically not been brilliant at? Well, you're actually, I think one of the major problems that the other parties could have now is that people love a winner and people like yeah. to back a winning horse. Strong horse theory, isn't yeah. it? The, so as Sinn Féin starts days. getting up to like numbers where a you know, single-party government starts becoming like, really possible. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. There is the, the other possibility there, isn't there? The Italian Communist Party was in the period, the post-war period, by distance, the strongest uh, communist party in the Western world, followed by, I suppose, the French. And they became more influential, more powerful in the parliamentary elections in Italy all, up to the 70s. Now, there are people in Italy who would dispute this, but there are other people who would say, absolutely, this is what happened. In an election... Aldo Moro was kidnapped by the Red Brigades and murdered. And it was speculated at the time that he was on his, he was in the process of drawing um, the communists, he was going to take the communists into government in what was called the historic compromise. Anyway, it was, some said that what was seen in the elections in this period immediately afterwards was a sudden panic by the middle classes who had, confidently and happily voted communist for gen for a generation in ha happy and confident in the knowledge that the communists would never get into government when the threat appeared oh my god they may actually be oh suddenly you had a not insignificant jump bunch of these people started voting for the socialists instead or for other people but the socialists mostly i wonder if it's also possible if one day we woke up and it hit the magic 40 
Sinn Féin 40%. If there might possibly also be a certain good, ooh, uh, I'm not sure about that. Possibly. On the other hand, this is something you must have encountered. The number of people that are talking, and again, it's anecdotal and we hate anecdotal, but actually we we had this experience at a meeting in there recently, both of them, where people who are not historically Sinn Féin saying to us, you know what? I was frightened of them for years. Now I've gone to the point I genuinely can't see how they could be any worse. Well, there is that sort of, those horrible people come in and raise your taxes and do all of these horrible things. Yes. And it'll be impossible for you to you know, have a high standard of living or to afford a house or to achieve any of these things. And, you know, if your children get sick, you, they won't be able to access health care without months of waiting. You do have to sort of go, yes, but that's already happening, isn't it? So, uh... Yeah, how are they, they going to make that worse? Yeah, okay. I'm sure the civil service has a lot of documents they want to shred, primarily involving informants, but at the same time. <laughs> and I think on that note, by Gary, I didn't say that. Gary said that. On that note from Gary, not from me, I think we'll say it's time to release the listeners back into the wild on what is a blustery but rather beautiful June day. And we will be back uh, next week. All the best. Bye-bye.